won't ask if this thing's on. Let me, uh, today we are going to resume our study of Romans, and I know how eagerly you all have been waiting for us to do that, uh, but uh, first, a couple of further announcements. One is that next week, after the service, uh, we have been invited to visit the former St. Timothy's Church in Catonsville, which is a facility that our friends in the Episcopal Diocese of Maryland are inviting us to consider moving to. As we've discussed here, uh, our lease here at Stone Chapel is up at the end of the year, and uh, we are doing our due diligence to find out where we ought to be meeting. Um, so uh, rather than sort of make that decision without uh, any awareness of what the options really are, we have been given permission to tour around that facility. So we'll be doing that basically right after the service next week, which is a bye week, so uh, you don't have to worry about getting home for the game, which today is at 4.15, and uh, we're playing, I believe we have one disrespectful individual here wearing his Steelers jersey. No, I said one wearing a jersey. He's wearing his jersey. Are you wearing your jersey? You're sporting the colors. That's, that's disrespectful, too. Less disrespectful <laughs> than the jersey and the jacket. Can you, can you just move that, that arm of the jacket so I don't keep seeing Steelers when I look over that way? Anyway, at the same time as we are considering the possibility of this spot down in Catonsville, we have been in communication with our friends at Pleasant Hill United Methodist up the street, which owns this building to whom we pay rent every month. Uh, they would like us to stay, and they would like to figure out a way for that to work, whether that involves us continuing to lease or buying the building or leasing to own or uh, who knows what other interesting creative solutions we might find. So uh, we, we want to be, as, as I said at the family meeting when we discussed this, we want to be as transparent as we can be about this with you. Uh, obviously, there are some elements of this that are going to be a little sensitive, um, but uh, we just want to let you know where we're at. We are trying to hear from God as to where he would have us go. So we're looking to explore the options, and at this point, uh, we as elders think we're supposed to at least consider both of these. So we are moving down both of these tracks, and of course... If you know of any other space with at least 5,000 square feet that is for lease or sale, please contact either Billy Holiday or Rob Hobson, who's rocking the Bart Scott jersey this morning. Well done. Uh, the other thing I want to point out is that you'll see in your, uh, in your bulletin uh, on November 16th and 17th, two events with Dr. Wallace. Dr. Wallace there is Dan Wallace, who teaches Greek at Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, he is the author of probably the most widely used uh, intermediate Greek grammar. He heads up the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, which goes around the world taking pictures of these manuscripts, these documents on which uh, the Bible was written many, many centuries ago and making them available to scholars by putting them online. He's also a great guy, and he is going to be here at our little church on November 17th, Sunday morning to preach, the night before He's going to be presenting a lecture, and there's going to be a dessert reception. Uh, B.J. Hall's house church is generously offered to uh, take care of handling the dessert piece of that, so you know it will be good. Um, and then uh, the plan is that uh, anybody who would like to uh, enjoy a cigar with Dr. Wallace after the service will be free to do so up at Fader's, because Dr. Wallace is, in addition to being the world's leading authority in the text of the New Testament, an avid cigar smoker. And as I mentioned, a great guy. 
So if you, I will, I will and, and we're going to have flyers for the Saturday night lecture uh, available, but if you know anybody who is interested in things like apologetics on the reliability of the text of the New Testament that we have, um, they would really dig Dr. Wall. In fact, they probably already know of his work. He's done some debates with Bart Ehrman, who's the guy at the uh, University of North Carolina who's written a book called The Orthodox Corruption of Scripture. Uh, Chris, you had a question? The lecture will be here at... At New Hope, yep. And then the following week, on November 24th, we'll have as our guests uh, A.J. Levine. She teaches the New Testament at Vanderbilt. Um, and uh, we're also going to have David Neff, who has uh, recently stepped down as editor of Christianity Today. Um, and uh, both David and A.J. have been involved in this Jewish evangelical dialogue that I've been uh, involved in every June for the last several years. So they'll be here the following week. So those will be mornings that we will have... Uh, world-class figures here at New Hope. And so I'm very much excited about that, looking forward to that. And uh, if you wanted to invite somebody and impress them, those would be the times to do that. So here we are back in Romans. One of the things about the New Testament is that some of the books of the New Testament, some of the 27 books, are written by somebody whose identity is unknown to us. The Gospels, which we know as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are all written by somebody whose identity has been attested by tradition, the tradition of the church, but who never themselves wrote, I'm Matthew and I approve this message. You don't get a little signature at the end of Mark saying, hey, I'm Mark and I wrote this, in part because we're not quite sure the ending of Mark is exactly the one that Mark originally wrote. But we have in Paul's letters, of course, a clear identification of who's writing them. All 13 of Paul's letters, Romans being the first one that's going to show up in your Bible, known as the most capital of his capital epistles, in which he starts off, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, regarding his son who, as to his flesh, was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and the apostolic calling to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience of faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be holy. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. The opening of Romans is a little more flowery than some of the other letters, but it's the same standard form. Paul says who he is and to whom he is writing. Not an unusual form for a letter in the first century. But I will say that one of the things we try to emphasize here when we read these texts, whether it's the letter of Romans or whether it's the book of James, whether it is one of the prophets' writings, we try to pay attention to who wrote these things. For one, it's important because these did not just drop immaculately out of the sky from God. God, as we have read earlier, 
when we were talking about Scripture, God inspired the authors of Holy Scripture to write these texts that we have. But it also enables us to get a, if we know who wrote the letter, it gives us a sense of what is behind the things that he is saying, what his priorities are, what his passions are, what he understands he's trying to do. And what we have in Romans is the letter of the person who, along with Peter, is probably the most formative figure in the history of the Christian movement, of course, other than Jesus. We read here in the beginning of Romans about Paul identifying himself as a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul, when he says that he is called to be an apostle, he's called to be a messenger, one who goes out to tell the news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But beyond that, I think what Paul is referring to here is his specific vocation to plant churches among the nations, among the Gentiles, those non-Jewish peoples. And if you read in the book of Acts, you see several times the same kind of pattern of how Paul would do that. He would roll into town, he would go to the synagogue, he would talk about Jesus and get beat up and kicked out of the synagogue and then probably beat up some more. And then he would go somewhere else if he could and share the good news of Jesus with people who were not hanging out at the synagogue, along with the people who were at the synagogue and were curious, but maybe you're lying a little bit low about that because they don't want to get beat up too. And he would found these small churches, these movements of followers of Jesus, the usually no bigger than the house churches that we have. We're we're talking a dozen people, maybe as many as 40 or 50. Maybe in a big city like Corinth, you might have had as many as 200 Christians total in in a collection of house churches. But Paul was a church planter. And so many of the letters that we have from him are letters to churches that he has already planted, reminding them of things he's taught them, or their letters like the one in Romans to a church that he didn't plant, but they've got some people there that he knows. And uh, he's talking about how he's intending to visit them and looks forward to that en route, as was his plan, to Spain. But we get a a sense of a a flavor of of what it's like for Paul to be a church planter here. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. This little church in Thessalonica was one that Paul definitely planted on the fly. Thessaloniki was a town that he got kicked out of pretty quickly. And so he didn't, doesn't seem to have had a whole lot of time with them. So in, in, in the first and second Thessalonians, those two letters, you find himself repeating himself. It would appear that there are things he said in first Thessalonians that people didn't quite get. He had to say them again in second Thessalonians. We get some of this in the Corinthian letters too. But he says, uh, let's just look at chapter 3. Finally, brothers... Pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored, just as it was with you. Of course, pray for us means Paul, not only himself, but also the people like, uh, like Barnabas and John Mark, the people that were traveling around with him. Timothy, of course. Pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored, just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not everyone has faith, but the Lord 
is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. So Paul was a guy on a mission, and he invited the churches he planted to partner with him in that, to be praying for him. He invited them to help financially in caring for the disciples in Jerusalem who were very poor. But he also established rules for the community. He built up a community and told them how they ought to live. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, continuing in verse 6, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and doesn't live according to the teaching you received from us. You yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We weren't idle when we were with you. We didn't eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day laboring and toiling, toiling so that we would not be a, bo- a burden to any of you. And we did this not because we don't have the right to such support, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. Even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If somebody's not going to work, let him not eat. You hear that some among you are idle. People aren't busy. They're busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. As for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right. If anybody doesn't obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. Don't associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed, yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So you see, we go from the heights of theology to the very basic matters of dealing with folk who are lazy in the community. You get the sense that the people in Thessalonica misunderstood what Paul had told them in 1 Thessalonians about the great and glorious day of the Lord's appearing. They may have been hanging out on the hillside waiting for him to show up. Paul's like, no, no. And he says, look, we, we as these as apostles, we have the right to receive support from you, but in fact, in order to set an example, Paul said, I worked. And we, we learn elsewhere, Paul was a tent maker, a leather worker. Paul was able to earn his living as a tradesman so that he wouldn't be a burden to the churches that he was planting. And, as he says, to be an example to them of being industrious, doing something useful with what God has given them. So he was a church planter. But, of course, he was planting these churches because they were communities of followers of Jesus Christ. Paul was, of course, a disciple of Jesus. This was not how it originally started for Paul. And he tells us a little bit about that story in, in Galatians chapter 1. There are a few places Paul tells us his story. We're going to look at a couple of them. One of the shorter ones is here in Galatians chapter 1, I, starting in verse 11. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached isn't something that some dude made up. I didn't get it as inside information from some guy. Nobody taught it to me. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ himself. You've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God 
and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age. I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I didn't consult any guy. I didn't go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. I went immediately out to the desert in Arabia. Later on, I went to Damascus. And after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter. Stayed with him 15 days. I didn't see any of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. And I assure you before God that what I'm writing you is no lie. Later on, I went to Syria and to Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. So Paul is a disciple of Jesus who was not originally a disciple of Jesus. He's somebody who had begun as an ambitious young Pharisee, an ambitious young rabbi. He, in fact, persecuted the church of God, the followers of Jesus. As we're about to read, he had a dramatic experience of conversion. But Paul is adamant to say that he is a directly commissioned, directly authorized, directly empowered apostle of Jesus Christ. He didn't get this from anybody. Christ gave it to him himself. So let's look back in Acts chapter 21. We'll read one of these stories that sets Paul up to give his story. book of Acts being the story of the early decades of the church. We read in Paul in, in chapter 21 about Paul probably at this point traveling with Luke, the author of Acts. In verse 17, Luke writes, when we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers there received us warmly. This would have been the people in Judea who, in Jerusalem, who were followers of Jesus and would have been what? They're in Jerusalem. Jews, yeah, these would have been the Jewish followers of Jesus and the, the church in Jerusalem, the original church. All the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for Torah. And you, you remember earlier in, in Acts, in some of the passages we talked about in the last few, uh, last few weeks, where, where thousands were added to their number that day. And so they say, look, Paul, here's the problem. The, the message has spread that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. We've got a problem here, because folk are going to hear that you are here, and then the reputation is whenever you show up someplace and piss off the local Jews, they beat you up and everybody who's with you, and we don't want that to happen. So here's what we're going to do. Here's the plan, Paul. We've got four guys here. They've made a vow. So you go, take them, join in their purification rites, pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Right? What kind of vow would this have been? 
a Nazarite vow, right? When you complete the vow, then you can shave, you, you get to shave your head. You, you couldn't cut your hair during the vow. What, and, and the Nazarite vow that we, we find out about that where? In Torah, in the law. This is, this is a, a, a ritual practice that uh, is prescribed in Torah for those who want to take this kind of vow. And so they're saying, look, Paul, you go in with them. And then everybody can know that there's no truth in these reports about you. Because obviously, if you're an antinomian, if you didn't think that people ought to obey Torah, you wouldn't be doing something like that. You wouldn't be showing up at the temple in Jerusalem, fulfilling the last commands of a vow like that. And they'll see that you are living yourself, you yourself are living in obedience to Torah. You know, as for the Gentile believers, we wrote to them, about some things they ought to do to not make their Jewish uh, folks in the church angry. So the next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. And he then went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. Well, when these seven days were over almost, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. Asia was, of course, where Paul was from. We'll talk about that in a moment. But they stirred up the whole crowd and they seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help us. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law. And this place, i.e. this temple, this is the guy who is trying to overturn the whole kit and caboodle. And besides, not only that, he has brought Greeks. He's brought Gentiles, non-Jews, into the temple area and defiled this holy place. Remember, what was the penalty for a Gentile who went into the inner courtyard of the temple? Death. There were concentric circles around the temple, and there's some spots that only the high, one spot only the high priest could be, and then only once a year and spots that only the priests who were doing the ministry could be, and then there are spots that only all the other priests and Levites could be, and then there are spots that only Jewish men could be in, and then only all Jews could be in, and then outside of that you would have the court of the Gentiles. But the Gentiles couldn't go into that spot. And they're saying Paul is upending all of this. The explanation Luke gives, they'd previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with Paul. They assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area, although there's no evidence that Paul did that at all. Well, the whole city was aroused. The people came running from all directions, and seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. And while they're trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. Conveniently, the Roman garrison was located right next door to the temple complex. So he at once took some officers and soldiers, ran down to the crowd, and when the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him ordered him to be bound with two chains, and he asked who he was and what he'd done. Some of the crowd shouted one thing, some shouted another, and since the commander couldn't get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get him out of here. Well, here comes the fun part. As the soldiers were about to take Paul to the barracks, he asked the commander, so can we talk? 
What, you speak Greek, he says? Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out of the desert some time ago? I get that all the time, said Paul. No, it's a different guy. No, Paul answered, I'm, I'm, I'm a Jew, not an Egyptian. I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. And that's true. Not only was Tarsus an important city, Cilicia was an important area for Judaism. Some of the oldest synagogues that still uh, have, have any ruins existing are there in that part of Asia Minor, eastern Turkey, southeastern Turkey. So I'm from no mean city. So let me talk to these people. And having received the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. And when they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, which is the language that they would have normally spoken. My brothers and my fathers, listen now to my defense. And when they heard him talking in Aramaic, they became very quiet. So Paul tells this story. He says, look, I'm, I'm a Jew. I was born in Tarsus of Cilicia. But I was brought up in this city. I was brought up here in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers, and I was just as zealous for God as any of you are here today. It's likely Paul would have received some initial education in the Hellenistic context of the early first century. He probably was born sometime around when Jesus was born, and Tarsus was a college town. There were a number of fine institutions there where he could have learned rhetoric. The Stoics were especially popular around there. But at some age, probably sometime when he was a teenager, he went to Jerusalem to pursue further training, further study as a rabbi. And he studied under Gamliel, who is one of the greatest of the rabbis of that time, the Tradition says that uh, after his death, there never was any more purity according to the Levitical Code. Nobody really understood Torah anymore after Gamaliel died. So Paul was thoroughly trained in Torah. He was just as zealous for God as any of the folks there. And he persecuted the followers of this way, these disciples of Jesus. I persecuted them to their death arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. As also the high priest and all the council can testify, i.e., these guys, I used to work for them. I was their hatchet man. I was their fixer. They needed something done. Send Saul. He'll take care of it. I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus. And I went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. But about noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord, I asked. I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light. They didn't understand the voice of him who was speaking. What, what shall I do, Lord, I asked. Get up, the Lord said. Go into Damascus. And there you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. 
My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of Torah, highly respected by all the Jews living there. And he stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. At that very moment, I was able to see him. And then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, Saul, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, wash your sins away, calling on his name. And when I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying at the temple into a trance and I saw the Lord speaking quick he said to me leave Jerusalem immediately because they won't accept your testimony about me Lord I replied these men know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believed in you when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him the Lord said to me go I will send you far away the Gentiles. You get the sense that Paul thought that his mission was going to be to preach to the Jews, right? I mean, Paul had cred. If anybody had cred as a Jew, it was Paul. He was a Pharisee. He studied under Gamaliel. He had been a devout, even violent servant of Torah as far as he understood. He was ruthlessly persecuting people who had adopted this heretical idea that Jesus of Nazareth was Messiah and Lord and needed to be worshipped. So if anybody ought to be able to go into Jerusalem and say, hey, guess what? We were wrong. It would be Paul. But God said, no, they're not going to hear it here. I'm going to send you out to the Gentiles. And so God did. And so that's what Paul did when he went out and preached. He would always start in the synagogue, but then he ended up building up churches, planting new churches that were involved, that, in, that included both Jews and Gentiles, but had more Gentiles than Jews, because on a percentage basis, you had a whole lot more Gentiles than Jews in just about every place in the Mediterranean basin in the first century other than Jerusalem. But Paul is doing all of this without for even a second abandoning his own identity as a Jew. Paul's a church planter. Paul's a disciple of Jesus. Paul's a follower of the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Holy One of Israel. And Paul was and is fully a Jew. There's a story in Acts earlier on in chapter 5. I'm reminded of when I read that story about Paul getting beaten up in Jerusalem. We have this, uh, this story in Acts chapter 5, verse, starting verse 12, the apostles performed all kinds of miraculous signs and wonders among the people. All the believers used to meet together and Solomon's porch in the temple complex. No one else dared join them 
even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets, laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. And the high priest and all of his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles, put them in the public jail, but during the night an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said. Tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and they began to teach the people. And when the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, sent to the jail for the apostles. But when they got there, they were gone. They went back and reported, oops, we found the jail securely locked but when, with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, there was nobody there. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. And then someone came and said, hey, look, those guys you put in jail, they're standing in the temple courts. They're teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They didn't use force because they feared the people would stone them. And having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders, he said, not to teach in his name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you're determined to make us guilty of this man's blood, because part of their message was that this Jesus was the one whom you, the leaders of the people, crucified with the help of evil men, the Romans. Peter and the other apostles replied, look, as we told you before, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. And we are witnesses of these things. So is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Which may have been taken as a little provocative. Because when they heard this, they were furious. They wanted to put them to death. But, and here's the cool part, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of Torah, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed them, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. Well, he was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census. He led a band of people in revolt, and he too was killed, and his followers were scattered. No harm, no foul. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. If their purpose or activity is of human origin, then it'll fail like all these other would-be messiahs. However, if it's from God, then you won't be able to stop it. You're only going to find yourself fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged, which I think still would probably not be consistent with not fighting against God. 
and they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, which worked so well the last time, and let them go. And, of course, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name day after day in the temple courts and from house to house. They never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Now, it doesn't say it here in the text, but I can imagine Gamaliel standing up there in the Sanhedrin, probably attended by his posse, his top lieutenants, his best of the best who are following him. And I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if among those there was Saul, his star student. And I can imagine when Saul saw Gamaliel stand up, he said, oh, great. The master's going to set these folks straight. Rabbi's going to tell these people how important it is that we stomp out idolatry. And you can just see Paul doing a slow burn as Gamaliel talks, getting more and more frustrated, more and more furious. Gamaliel is not doing what he's supposed to do. It may be this was the moment of Paul's radicalization. It may be this was the moment that Paul decided his teacher had gone soft and Paul needed to go out on his own and become an enforcer. That his zeal for Torah had exceeded that of his own master. I don't know. But I do know that a couple chapters later we find Paul standing there and holding the cloaks of the people who are stoning the martyr Stephen, which, if you read the rest of Paul's writings, evidently was an honorable thing to be the coat rack for the people stoning the heretic. Either way, I think it's useful for us to bear all of that in mind when we come here to chapter 9 of Romans, when we come to this passage, chapters 9 through 11. Paul opens up by saying, look, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms this in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow. I have unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people Israel. Paul never stopped being a Jew. When he started following Jesus, he was following Jesus because he understood Jesus to be Messiah, to be the one who was sent to redeem Israel. Paul understood the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as part of the plan that God was working out in and through the people Israel, whom he had called we're going to talk some more about this next week. But oftentimes, it is, this conversion of Paul is misunderstood. People will say, well, that's when Paul became a Christian. Well, sort of. He became a Christian in that he recognized Jesus was Christ, was Messiah, and became his follower. But he never stopped being a Jew. In fact, Paul would probably tell you that it was in obedience to to Jesus the Jewish Messiah, that he fulfilled his responsibilities as a Jewish believer in Jesus to plant churches among 
the nations while sharing the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection with Jew and Gentile alike. And as Steve Fowl talked about last week, there's bits of this that may have been very difficult for Paul to make sense of, right? Paul, being a Jew, is a good monotheist. And then if you're supposed to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but then you're also supposed to worship Jesus of Nazareth. Well, hang on a sec. How do I do that? I think part of Paul's story when he talks about going out to Arabia, going out in the desert, I can see him packing his Bible, his scrolls, his parchments, packing them out, heading out, and spending years reading through the words of Torah, and the writings, and the prophets, coming to realize this is the one that Isaiah was talking about when he talked about this suffering servant. So when Paul comes back, he is not a changed man in the sense that he has abandoned his former way of life, or that he's abandoned his identity as a follower of the one true God. He has incorporated new information into his understanding of what that means. He's changed in respect to his orientation toward Jesus, but he is as zealous a follower of Yahweh as he ever was. And he is as proud to be a Jew as he ever was. What does he say? I wish, I could wish that I were cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs, i.e. ours, Paul would say. Theirs is the adoption of sons. Theirs is the divine glory. Theirs are the covenants, the receiving of Torah, the temple worship, all the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. From them is traced the human ancestry of Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Paul does not for a second regret being a Jew. Paul does not for a second renounce or reject his Jewish heritage. And Paul most certainly is not in this section of Romans trying to set up some way for people to come to God who aren't Jewish so that the people who are can still do their thing. It makes absolutely no sense in the context of the scope of Paul's writings. Now, Paul is writing this letter, and especially this part of this letter, with a great sense of personal passion, a great sense of pain, a sense deep regret that his people, the very people who should have received this message have instead rejected it. And he knows what that's like because that was him. Incidentally, Jesus is a Jew too was, still is. That's especially necessary for those of us who do not come from a Jewish background to recognize and respect the degree to which this Jewish identity is 
part of who Paul is that you just can't pull out. You can't stick that off to the side and bracket it. Everything Paul does, everything Paul is, is rooted in his identity as somebody who is called from the family of God's people, Israel, to be an apostle to all the nations. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for our brother Paul, for the witness that his life offers to us, for his living testimony. We thank you for his faithfulness to plant these churches that received and preserved and copied and transmitted these precious letters that we get to read. These words that your spirit inspired. We thank you for his faithfulness as a servant. For the example that he set. We thank you for the fact that his faithful ministry to the Gentile world eventuated some 2,000 years later in us being here today. Most of us not of Jewish origin, worshiping Jesus of Nazareth, the Jewish Messiah, as our Lord and Savior. Pray that we too would be his faithful disciples. In Christ's name.